0: Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you both here in a Worship Center. And welcome you in uh, over at the Ridge. Uh, glad to have you. But uh, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors. And if it's your very first time, so glad you're here. And I just pray that God meets you in a really powerful way. Uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now, as we do every week. And inside your program, if you're new, is a green and white message note sheet that we use every week. So you want to take that out. And if you guys are all set, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here and to be pursuing you. We're just so thankful for who you are and who you are in our lives, uh, how you're working in amazing ways. And we're just here for the next step of the journey, both as a church and as followers of you individually. And and so we pray that you'd work in a powerful way. I just pray that you'd give me words to say, words would flow, strength in my voice. I pray for us, whether it's here uh, in the worship center over uh, in the Ridge or later online, people watching, that you just meet us powerfully by your spirit. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Our story starts today uh, early in the morning. And uh, he's been up all night. He's tried to go to sleep, but it's just been a rough night. And he's been thinking about this trip for a long time. And during the night as he's been up and and having a hard time sleeping, turning over and over in his sleep, uh, his mind's gone back to his early days as a young man, and the day he made that fateful decision, I mean, sure enough, his, his friends, his family had told him it was a wrong decision, and he knew at the time it was a huge risk. It was a, it was a compromise. It would require a compromise. There's no question, but as he looked forward, he felt like the reward outweighed the risk, and so he made the step, but now he's down the line, and he never could have foreseen as a young man uh, all the unintended consequences of that decision. And so it's led him to this place, and frankly, he would do anything he could to go back in time and to rework that decision, to redo it, have a mulligan, but, um, but he knows it's not possible. And so as he's laid there during the night, he, he thinks this is the only shot. It's, it's a long shot, uh, but it's the only play he has left to try to redeem this life that he's made for himself. And so as he gets up in the morning, it's still cold, it's crisp outside, And he quietly sneaks out of his house so he doesn't wake his wife and kids. And he heads out for this long journey south, not knowing what awaits him. Well, today we are continuing this journey that we started last week. This new series is called Unfiltered, Revealing the Character of the Kingdom. And if you're brand new, I want to welcome you. Um, This is actually like the second in in a a kind of second mini-series. Think of it like a second season of a popular TV show, right? Like, uh, we talked last week, like, Survivors, or I mentioned Walking Dead. Uh, for some of you who are older, Seinfeld. Uh, for some of you who are not quite so old, Friends. For some of you who are really old, Perry Mason. Uh, but, uh, but there was, like, the second season of an ongoing drama, that uh, ongoing series that we're calling Unfiltered. And it's really, it's a series about Jesus. And one of the things that we've seen in this series is that we all have this natural tendency. You have it, I have it. We all do this. We naturally tend to recreate Jesus kind of in our own image. So he's like us. And so we, we take the, what we've learned and, and the stories we've heard, maybe parts of the Bible we've read or the movies we saw, kind of current trends and cultural, political correctness. We, we kind of roll it in. We kind of create Jesus in our own image. So our goal in this series is to get away from that. Our, our goal in this series is to go back in time To one of the earliest and most important documents. It's a biography of the life and teaching of Jesus. We call it the Gospel of Matthew. And see if we can go back to the first century when it was written and try to to strip off some of the filters that have built up over time and to capture some new images, some true images of who Jesus really was, who he is, what it means to follow him. So in this second series, what we're doing is we're looking at the most famous teaching of Jesus in all the Gospels. It's the most famous message ever delivered in the history of the world. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you were here last week, it covers Matthew 5 to 7. You were here. We we looked at kind of the opening, just the intro, the first 13 verses. That's all we're covering in this this current series. And it starts with these eight statements of blessing. Uh, We call them the Beatitudes in Latin, from, from the Latin for blessing. So these eight Beatitudes, and what, what Jesus is really doing, as we saw last week, he's kind of laying out the path to the, to the, good, to the good life, what in Hebrews, what, what, what the Jews would call the good life. You know, life lived under the blessing of God, life lived to the full. And so like all great thinkers before and after him, uh, you have to say, hey, what is the path to the good life? And so he's laying it out, and in these eight opening statements, he's describing for us this kingdom that he's bringing, and what it means to be part of his kingdom, and the character of the kingdom, what kind of kingdom it is, and the character of the kinds of people that can be welcomed to his kingdom, and the kind of person that we'll become as we follow him as our leader. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, if you have your apps, we're going to jump in today and look at the very first uh, beatitude, the first blessing. Um, so it's there in your note sheet. It's called the first beatitude, the good news. And if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to open up, you've get your apps, turn them on. To Matthew chapter five and verse one, and, and I'm really looking forward to this message. I think it's going to be very encouraging. You know, there's a passage in um, Timothy that just speaks a lot to me as a pastor. And it, it talks. Paul says to Timothy, he says, "Hey, really focus in until I come on the reading of the word uh, and teaching and encouraging." And uh, I think as a, as a pastor, there's certain messages that are more kind of teaching, more challenged, more uh, inspirational, more vision casting. Uh, more calling you out. And I, I gravitate towards that. This is a message today that's really a message of tremendous encouragement. Um, and, and I just I believe God's going to meet you. I've seen it happen all weekend long. Um, and so as you're turning there, though, let me, let me set this up. So what we've seen is that Jesus is about 30 years old. He has uh, traveled south from his hometown of Nazareth. He's gone down to the south. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. Um, and when he was baptized, you remember this, that the Father Himself anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. So, like in the same way that Samuel anointed King David to start his rule with the oil in the Old Testament, the Father now anoints His Son with the Holy Spirit as the Davidic Messiah. And so, from that point on, Jesus begins to operate out in the power of the Spirit. And so, both Matthew and Luke say He's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness for 40 days, like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. And whereas Israel failed the test, Jesus, uh, as the representative of Israel, he passes the test. And in Luke's gospel, he says that he returned back in the power of the Spirit. And so then he, he, he goes north, he launches this movement, uh, and he, he, his message is that the, the kingdom of the heavens, the long-promised kingdom of Israel Uh, When when God would come and return all wrongs to right, restore the kingdom, or heal all of creation, that's very near. And he not only makes this epic claim they've been waiting for for hundreds of years, but he actually begins to uh, demonstrate supernatural signs of power as the power of the coming kingdom of the heavens invades time and space, and people are being healed, and blind can see, and lame can walk, and the demonized are being set free, and so on. And so as a result of that, right, people are coming from great distance to listen and learn about the kingdom. Uh, They're coming to be healed by Jesus, to catch a healing. And so that's the setting. So, so far in Matthew, that's the story he's told us. We don't have the teaching of Jesus. What does it mean to be part of the kingdom? And so now we launch in, and today's the first of these eight statements. So we'll pick it up at verse one. So uh, Jesus, when he sees these crowds, He went up on the mountainside uh, there in the area of Galilee. He sits down like a rabbi to teach, and his disciples come to him. And so we saw last week, right, there's two groups in this audience. There's the crowd who've not yet bought into Jesus. They just want to learn more about the kingdom. Uh, They want to be healed or catch a healing. Uh, And then there's the disciples. Those who have come out of the crowd into the kingdom. They have decided to follow Jesus as their leader, buy into his message, so two distinct groups, and he's really teaching his disciples, and the crowd's welcome to listen in, and, and they're going to learn from this, and they're going to have the option to leave the crowd and become a disciple, but really two uh, distinct groups, and by the way, if you were not here last week, we laid a foundation for not just this current series um, uh, of the next eight weeks, but for all the Sermon on the Mount, and so I really encourage you to go, there's kind of five key principles, and encourage you to go on YouTube and catch up with that. But anyway, so the scene is set. Now he's ready to begin to to talk. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth, and I don't want you to miss this this first beatitude, this first blessing, this first path to the good life, the first description of who can be in his kingdom goes like this Blessed, which is a Hebrew way of saying, uh, This is the life you want. This is the person you want to be. Blessed are the poor, what? Poor in spirit, for theirs is. Catch this, not will be. Is now yours? Is the kingdom right? That it's possible to enter into the kingdom here and now. You have to wait till you die. You don't have to work for some future event. But if you're poor in spirit, this kingdom is for you. Now, of course, this raises a question. Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? We want to be poor in spirit. We want to be part of the kingdom. Well, what does that mean? We'll come back to that. But uh, before we we talk about that, I want to go to a passage in Luke's gospel, right? So there on your note sheet, uh, I've put this. We talked about this last week. We've got these two very similar parallel uh, teachings of Jesus. Matthew 5, we call the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 6 is the Sermon on the Plain. We don't know if it's the same sermon, just edited from a different perspective, or whether uh, it's actually two different teachings at two different times, which uh, probably is. But it starts the exact same way. So there in your note sheet, um, this is how, in Luke's gospel, he says, uh, he looks at his disciples, so Jesus, again, addressing his disciples, and he said to them, very first thing he says is, blessed are you who are what? Poor. Poor. Now, what's missing from this account? Spirit. In spirit, right? So in this, in this uh, in, on this particular day, uh, Jesus doesn't care about your spirit, only about your wallet, Um <laughs> So, he said, blessed are the poor. And that doesn't mention spirit, just are the poor, right? Uh, but notice the other language is very similar. For yours is, catch the current tense, present tense, yours is the kingdom of God. Of course, kingdom of the heavens, kingdom of God, kind of synonymous. Um, and then, but Jesus adds this in Luke's account, a few verses down. He not only has the, the blessings, like, like the Hebrew prophets, like the Hebrew prophets, he has the woes. So, if blessing is the path to life, Woe is the path to death. You don't want to be on the woe side of the ledger. And so a few verses later, he not only says, blessed are the poor, but he says, but woe to you who are rich, right? Uh, For you've already received your comfort. So the question is today, we're going to be addressing what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be poor? Because if we want to receive, be part of the kingdom, we have to be kind of in that group of people, right? We, we have to kind of be what Jesus would call the poor or the poor in spirit. Now, to get at that today, what I want to do is there in your note sheet is a section called the first Beatitude, two key principles. And so this first part of the message right now is going to be big picture, uh, we need to go back in time, we need to, to look at these statements of Jesus through the eyes of a first century Jew, and through the, the, uh, that, that's, uh, that kind of sees them through the eyes of the Old Testament scriptures and the story of Israel. Um, and so we need to go back in these, in these first two principles and understand kind of what it would have felt like then. So the first, time, the first part is going to be a big picture principle. The first principle will deal more with bless, what is being blessed are the poor. The second one, what is being blessed are the poor in spirit. And then after we have that kind of theoretical base, we understand what he's saying, then we're going to get really practical for our lives, all right? I'm going to ask two powerful questions. So let's jump in. So the, uh, the first principle goes like this. When Jesus says, uh, you know, blessed are the poor, what's he getting at? And so I'm putting it like this. The kingdom is good news for the poor. The kingdom is good news for the poor. Now, do you mean like poor in spirit? Like, well, maybe, but not really. I mean, really, just poor, right? Uh, One of the things that we're going to have to do today if we're going to get at what Jesus is saying is take off some filters. And especially for those of us who are longtime Christ followers, we're so used to reading this in a spiritual way, like Jesus just cares about the condition of our heart, doesn't care about our economics, that we kind of miss the obvious. But if you're a first-century Jew, I want you to understand, like, how you would read this. Remember that it's impossible to understand the teaching of Jesus if you separate it out from the narrative, the story of Israel that he's come to fulfill. Remember what we've learned in this series, everything in Israel's history is leading up to Jesus. So he's coming to add the next chapters in this story. And so what was the story of Israel? Well, the story of Israel is a story of bondage. It's a story of rebellion. Um, and throughout their history, Uh, they had often become poor as a nation. Now sometimes this was because of their own personal rebellion against God. Many times it was because of their national rebellion. Uh, Like when they would rebel against God and then they would go as slaves in the exile into Babylon. So the story that the prophets are telling in the Old Testament is that their promise to Israel in the Old Testament that have gone into slavery, into bondage, is that One day God will come back to you and he will restore your land and he'll restore you and he will turn all wrongs to right. And I know that you're poor now, but God sees you and he still loves you and he has a plan for the world, right? So this is the part of the big picture story we're stepping into when we step into the teaching of Jesus. So uh, to understand this first principle, um, we need to uh, go to a passage in Luke Now, you don't need to turn there because I put it there on your note sheet. I'm going to tell the story, and then we'll look at the key passage, right? So so if you were to compare the story, uh, the the gospel of Luke to the gospel of Matthew, you would see they're very similar at certain points. And they start off in a similar way. Jesus, you know, about 30 years old, goes south. He's baptized, anointed by the Spirit, by the Father, goes in the wilderness, uh, passes the test, comes back to the north, to the Galilee, in the power of the Spirit. We've talked about that. In Matthew's gospel, as you know, the way he tells the story is when Jesus came north, he went back to his hometown of Nazareth, but quickly moved to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, which became his base of operations. And he began to announce that the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. He began to travel all through the Galilee in the synagogues, sharing the message that the kingdom is at hand. The good news, right? That's Matthew's version. Well, here's Luke's version. He knows that happened like that, but he wants to focus on one particular message that Jesus delivered when he went to his hometown of Nazareth. So he understands, like Luke gets this, he went to Capernaum and and went around, but eventually he came to his hometown, and there he gave a very important message that's critical for us to understand if we want to understand who Jesus is and why he came and what his mission was. And so in Luke's gospel, he goes straight from the temptation moving north and starts at Nazareth, because it starts the whole story, you know? So here's what happens. So Jesus goes to Nazareth, he grown up. Now remember, Nazareth is very small, probably 200 to 500 people at most. Uh, at this point, when he comes to town, they've already heard rumors about Jesus. They've heard about his teaching. They've heard about his announcement, the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And they've even heard rumors of his healings. And so they're pretty excited to have their hometown boy come back. And so when he comes back uh, on that Saturday, he's going to go to synagogue. Uh, like as he always does, and uh, when he's at the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue is going to ask him to read this scripture, which is a high honor, all right? Now, this is where we're picking up the story, and so there in your note sheet, let's see what happens. So, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, uh, and on the Sabbath day, so what, what's the Sabbath day? Saturday. Yeah, Saturday, so he's on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and catches as was his what? Just a quick sidebar here, Jesus was a good Jew. His whole life, he'd gone to synagogue every Saturday. And when he grew up and started his ministry, he still went to synagogue every Saturday. What did he do at synagogue? He prayed the prayers of Israel. He listened to the word being read. He worshiped the Father, right? And so Luke says, hey, this is still going on. So he goes to synagogue, but he's asked to read the Scripture. Every week the ruler of the synagogue would, would ask someone, it was a high honor, to read the Torah. And they would bring it out. You know, and then, so he's bringing it around the whole room. And it's a high honor to read the Torah. And so they hand him the Scripture. And when they hand it, of course, they didn't have Bibles in that day. They had scrolls. And they handed him the scroll of Isaiah. Now Isaiah has 66 chapters. It's one of the biggest scrolls but when they hand it to Jesus, it's interesting that he is going to unroll it until he gets to what we would call today chapter 61. Now, there's no, no verses. There's no chapters at this point. So you've got to kind of know what you're doing to find what you're looking for. So he unrolls this thing, and he starts reading. Now, here's what he's going to read. He's going to read a very famous kingdom passage. It's a passage about this mysterious character in Isaiah called the servant of Yahweh. There are four times in Isaiah the servant of Yahweh is described. The most important time or most famous time is in chapter 52 and 53 where it talks about the servant of Yahweh will be rejected by the people he is sent to and he will die for the sins of the people. And so it's a very important passage about when the servant of Yahweh comes and what Isaiah prophesies is when the servant of Yahweh comes, the spirit of Yahweh is going to be anointed. He's going to be anointed with the spirit of Yahweh. And that he is going to bring the good news of the kingdom of restoration, the kingdom of the heavens, right? It's a very famous passage. So Jesus looks for that passage. And when he gets it, and remember, this is like hometown boy making headlines, uh, he's home, everyone's going to be really curious what he has to say, and so here's what happens. So as was his custom, he goes to the synagogue. So he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed, and unrolling it, he finds a place where it's written, this will be chapter 61. By the way, next week we're going to read Isaiah 61, today we're just going to read Luke's excerpts. This is an excerpt, all right? So, uh, so, here he begins to read. So, Jesus is standing up. He says, the spirit of Yahweh. Remember, it's Lord all caps in Hebrew. So, it's the spirit of Yahweh is on me because he has anointed me. So, when was he anointed? His baptism, right? He has anointed me, and here is my job description. Number one, to proclaim good news to the whom." the poor. Men and women, do you think it is by chance that when Jesus gets up and says, let me tell you the character of my kingdom, that in both Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, his first words are to announce good news to the poor. He is fulfilling his prophetic calling. And so he uh, said, my job is to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, <clears throat> to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, that God has come returned to forgive the nation. He's, he's brought his favor. Now, this is an excerpt, would have been longer. But at this point, everyone is hanging on his words. What is he saying? What is he claiming? And Jesus, with great dramatic pause, and Jesus rolls up the scroll. He reads it. There was a lot to roll. He gives it back to the attendant without saying a word. He goes and sits down. Every eye is fastened. What is he going to say about this famous proclamation, this famous prophecy? And he says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled here and now in your hearing.'" And it's really interesting. Just a quick sidebar. That is a really odd way of saying, I'm the guy. (laughs) Do you remember we talked about John the Baptist a couple weeks ago? And he said, Are you really the guy? And he quotes like Isaiah 35. They'll tell him the lame are like, Why don't you just say yes? (laughs) Because this is code. Jesus is teaching in Nazareth. Nazareth is in Galilee. Who is the ruler of Galilee? Herod Antipas. Who did Herod Antipas just arrest? John the Baptist. Why did he arrest him? For high treason against the kingdom. Why? Because his message was the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. What is Jesus going around saying? The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. It's a very dangerous thing to say, I'm the guy. So what you say is, you say it in a Jewish way. And you say, today, this scripture has been fulfilled. That's what we call plausible deniability. Hey, did you say you were the guy? I didn't say I was the guy. I said the scripture was fulfilled. Ah. But what I want you to catch is the first line of his job description, according to Isaiah, is to announce good news to the poor. And this is where often, I think, as modern day 21st century Christ followers, we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we come to the Sermon on the Plain, we see it through 21st century. What is God saying to me about my spiritual life? Can I tell you something? The vision of the prophets is much bigger than your spiritual life. The vision of the prophets of Israel is the restoration of all creation. Your spiritual life is a part of that story. But the new heavens and the new earth, they're part of that story. The mountains running with wine, that's part of the story. It's one of my favorite parts of the story. I'm just so glad I'm not a Baptist. Uh, uh, uh. The story of Israel is that one day the God who created all heavens and earth and said it was good, the God who has watched the human race destroy this thing, the God that has watched human oppression run crazy, so wherever you go in the human race, the rich oppress the poor, that it's an unjust society, it's an unjust world, it's an ugly world, and wherever you study, and you pick a time in history, and you study You see the injustice, the ugliness, the oppression that is part of the story of the human race and the vision of the prophets is one day God will become king and when God becomes king, righteousness will prevail, peace will prevail, injustice will go away, the poor will be released. You see, this is the vision. Our vision is so small. Hey, Jesus saves me from my personal sin, so I can go to heaven when I die. That is a small vision. No, God is going to restore all of creation, and you get to be a part of it. You see? And so when Jesus came, and he says to the people, and I want you to picture on that hillside, thousands of people, most of whom are very poor. These are subsistence farmers. These are people paying heavy taxation to Rome. In the ancient world, there was no middle class. There's rich and there are poor, and the rich oppress the poor. And the prophets of Israel had called out the nation of Israel throughout their history time and time again, stop oppressing the poor. I love the poor. Amos, you sell your your brother For the price of a sandal, you sell him into slavery. You loan him money, and when he can't pay him back, you sell his kids. What's wrong with you? You don't care about the poor. I love people, and I love the poor, and stop oppressing the poor. And this is a message of the prophets, and the promise was when the kingdom of God would come, unjust rulers and the rich that oppress will be torn down, and righteousness would rule. Because God loves the poor. Now, just a quick sidebar here so we don't miss this. Just because someone's poor doesn't mean they're godly. Right? We've all known a lot of mean, bigoted, poor people. Right? We've all known people that hate God and are poor. When Jesus says the kingdom is for the poor, he's not saying that the poor somehow makes you more righteous than the rich. There's something, that... But here's what he's saying. In a culture, in a Jewish culture, where the rich were seen as God's favorites, where the rich were seen as living under the blessing of God, he says, no, 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 you rich that have made your money by ripping off the poor, woe to you. The kingdom is not for you. The kingdom is what I think Jesus called the righteous poor. And uh, this theme of the righteous poor runs all through the Old Testament. Those that, yes, they're poor, yes, they're oppressed, but they're looking to God for their salvation. They're calling out on him. The promise of the prophets is one day God will respond and turn wrongs to right. So you see a couple examples there on your note sheet from the Old Testament. There's just a million of these, but I chose a couple. Psalm 34, this poor man called and Yahweh heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Or even a more impressive one, Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm about the the sufferings of the Messiah. But if you read all the way through it, it says what's going to happen as a result of his sufferings. And at the end, this is what it says, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Yahweh will praise him. And so what I want you to catch, the promise of the prophets is when the kingdom would come, wrong would be turned to right, and God would rescue the poor. Those who trust in him who love him but are oppressed. And so Jesus is announcing the good news of the kingdom, that God is breaking into human history, and you may be rejected by your culture because you're not rich, you're not famous, you're not influential. You may be uh, oppressed right now, but you are precious before the Lord. You say, blessed are the poor. Now, uh, the second state, the second part, that you know, Matthew's version of this, and again, we don't know whether... Matthew was uh, just kind of writing his, kind of editing this to help us, kind of paraphrasing help us understand, or this was a different sermon on a different day, very likely, I think that's probably more likely. But this, Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So the question is like, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? A couple different opinions on that. I'm going to give you both. Um, but th- let's give you the principle first. So th- the kingdom is good news for the spiritually poor. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Some scholars believe that what Jesus is saying is he's just he's just kind of um, spelling out the emotional state of poor people. That uh, if you've ever been around people that are truly poor, uh, and, and you know in our culture we don't rub we don't rub shoulders with that a lot, but if you if uh, on a regular basis, but if you've been around truly poor people, often they become very you might call them poor in spirit. They they become very beat down by life. Uh, they, they, they just don't have much hope. Uh, they maybe shuffle along. They're, in my preparation for this message, I was reading about some missionaries that had gone to Mexico and shared Jesus for the first time in a community and a tribe but had, had never heard. And so the people coming to their Bible studies to learn about you were very poor. And just their very countenance, they would kind of sulk in. They would never look you in the face. They'd always look down. They're just beaten by life. And, and so they're poor in spirit. Are, are you within that? Kind of, and so some people think when Jesus said, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's just saying, you know, the poor and, and the, what they're like in spirit, like internally. Other scholars think that what Jesus is talking about here is something we'll see a lot in the Gospels, that what he's saying is that if you want to be part of the kingdom, there is a core humility that's required. Where instead of seeing yourself as spiritually rich, I've got a lot to offer God, that you see yourself as spiritually poor, which is our true condition. So let me give you an example. Um, we started the day uh, with a story of this man who is going to get up at dawn and travel south, kind of one last shot to, to turn his life around, right? So he's made some early choices, bad choices in life, against wise counsel and uh, didn't see the unintended consequences, but it's led to disaster, and he desperately wants to change, and th- th- this is kind of his last shot. Now, this is a story uh, that Jesus told, and we, don't, we honestly don't know if it was a real-life story, something he had witnessed, or whether it was something he was just making up to make a point and teach a point, um, but, uh, but let me tell you what we know about the man in the story. We actually know quite a bit about him. Uh, First of all, we know that um, we know that he would be considered in his day what we would call a super sinner. All right? so like I don't know who is like in your super sinner box. You know, uh, <laughs> mafia leaders, uh, sex crime perpetrators. Like who would be like the worst in your mind? But in first century uh, Judaism, uh, one of the super sinner category would be tax collectors. Now, these are men who had bid for the right to collect taxes for the ruling power, Um, and often in the process, they would rip people off. In the process, they were working with Gentiles by nature that would defile them, Um, and and they were, if I remember right, they weren't even allowed to testify in Jewish courts. They were considered very low-life people, and so they were were considered, uh, you know, like super sinners. So, uh, in fact, in the Gospels, you'll see them often paired with prostitutes and other sinners, so when they want to talk about super sinners in the Gospels, they'll talk about tax collectors, prostitutes, and other kinds of people like that. Right? All right. So, um, so we know this guy is a tax collector. So what, is, what do we know? So he's a Jew. We know he's a Jew. We know that growing up in Jewish culture, this would have been like one of the worst things you could do. Um, and, and we know that he chose to, to violate his conscience and to rebel against God and against his culture and against the law and all those things in order to do this. So he made a major moral compromise. We can, you know, we can assume that he did this because he thought, yes, there's big risk, but there's going to be bigger reward, and so I think it's going to be worth it. But what we also know is that now he's later on in life, and he's very sorry about the decision he's made. It's led him to a life of unintended consequences, and he has deep regret now over that decision. But he's so far from God, and he's been so far from God, he doesn't know if there's any potential way home Um, But his one option, his one shot, is to go to the temple. Now, to understand Jewish culture, we have to understand the temple, right? So the temple is not church. Uh, Synagogue would be more like church. The temple, there's only one temple. It's in all the world, it's a place where heaven meets earth for a Jew. It's a place where God resides. It's a place where sacrifices are offered for sin. It's where you go for forgiveness. If you want to meet with God, you go to the temple. And so we don't know where this man lived in this story, uh, but uh, you know, I, I said south. I made that part up. But he's going to have to travel. He's going to have to go. Now, when you get to the temple, it is a huge complex. Some of it we've talked about this before. It's three football fields long. The campus is three football fields long on one side, five football fields on another. It is surrounded by a huge, uh, huge wall. In fact, the stones underneath the foundation stones, we go to Israel today, we can see them. One of the stones weighs 600 tons, 600 tons. I mean, it's like from me, further than that music stand over there, and higher, taller than I am, and about 8 foot wide, 601 of the stones. And that's for the foundation. This place is massive. It is like a military fortress. In fact, the, on the northwest corner, there is a military fortress called the Fortress Antonia, where the so- soldiers would be. The place is so big that inside the walls of the fortress... You can can put 200,000 Jews during feast days. So towards the back of one of the walls is the temple, 15 stories high, white stone covered with gold on top. So if you're a Jew and you want to pursue God and you're where this tax collector is, he's like, I got to go to the temple. I got to go to meet with God. But when we get there, it's going to be really interesting what happens. And I want you to see this. So there in your note sheet is this familiar story. Uh, Jesus tells a story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Uh, One's a Pharisee. So a Pharisee would be, most Pharisees were laymen. They were extremely, we call them today, extremely religious people. They followed uh, all the Jewish laws, also a lot of the traditions of the elders. They took their faith very seriously. So they'd be like the super saints of the day, at least that's how they were often seen. Um, And and the other was a tax collector. So we got a super saint and a super sinner in the story. So the Pharisee stands by himself and he says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. Now, this may strike you as odd. Like, oh, we would never say that today. Can I tell you something? There's only one reason we would never say that today. It's because of Jesus. Prior to the coming of Jesus, humility was not seen as a virtue. Because of Jesus and his impact, all culture has changed. Remember we talked about how Jesus is the most influential person? All Western culture changed. That's why today when we see a guy on ESPN I'm the greatest. Without me, my team would be nothing. We go, what a jerk! In the Roman Empire, you would have gone, good jobs, stand up for yourself. It was very common. You you would you would brag on yourself. It was considered normal and appropriate. And so this this Jew is in that culture, and so he says, uh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I don't rob people. I not a, I don't do evil. I'm not an adulterer. Uh, I'm not even like this tax collector. In fact, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of. All I get. So Here's what I want you to catch. This man sees himself as spiritually rich, spiritually wealthy. Are you with me? He's coming to God, and he's like, I am loaded. God, you and me, we got something going here. Uh, I'm loaded. I am doing what you told me. You're blessing me. Good to meet with you. Right? I'm loaded. I'm spiritually rich. The other man, I want you to see his emotional state. He stands at a distance. So remember, the goal is to get as close to the holy of holies as possible. So if you're a Gentile, you can only stay out here in the Gentile of the courts. If you're a woman, you can only go here in the court of the women. If you're a Jewish man, you can go here, court of Israel. If you're a priest, you can go where the sacrifices are offered. If you're chosen by lot to go in and pray, you can go inside the temple. So the whole goal is to get as close to God as possible. That's today why Jews pray at the Western Wall, because it's the closest place to where they believe the Holy Holy was. So that's the goal. So why is this guy standing at distance? Because he's like some of you, whether here or over in the ridge. When you first came to Rocky Peak, you were afraid the place was going to burn down because you'd come. <laughs> he doesn't feel worthy. Like, I'm not even sure if I should be trying this. This is my last shot, but I I don't even know if this is going to work. I don't want to get too close. I don't want to get too close to the flame. And on top of that, you get another insight into his emotional being. He says he wouldn't even look up to heaven. So Jews would look up to heaven when they would pray. Eyes open, by the way. Eyes, you know, look up to heaven when they would pray. Speak to God. And Jesus does this. You see this in the Gospels. He lifts his eyes to heaven. This man doesn't feel like he can lift his eyes to heaven. He is spiritually broke. And he's afraid to even be there. But it's the only shot he's got. Hope against hope. That God will have mercy. And he is now going to beat his breast, which is a sign of great sorrow. And all he says is, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Like he knows, he has nothing to bring to the table. There is nothing that he is or nothing that he's done that would put a claim on God. He is spiritually broke. He is bankrupt. So what he's doing is throwing himself on the mercy of the judge. But what's interesting is what Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the one who's spiritually broke, rather than the other went home justified. Two men there, one man went home right with God, received by God, part of the kingdom of God, and one didn't. The man who saw himself as spiritually rich didn't. The man who saw himself as spiritually poor did. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs, and really theirs alone, is the kingdom. I love the way uh, Dallas Willard puts it on your note sheet. I put two or three quotes there. Uh, Blessed, this is his his paraphrase of the first beatitude. Blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, the deprived, the deficient, the spiritual beggars. Leon Morris, a great evangelical scholar. The poor in spirit. in in the sense of this beatitude, are those who recognize that they're completely and utterly destitute in the realm of spirit. They recognize their lack of spiritual resources and therefore their complete dependence on God. Think of that tax collector. Poor in spirit, next one, Craig Blomber, one of my favorite uh, scholars. Poor in spirit as a virtue must refer to the acknowledgement of one's spiritual powerlessness and bankruptcy apart from Christ. And so to this crowd that Jesus is speaking, that are largely made up of poor people, rejected by their culture, scraping by, taught that they're not blessed, taught that they don't have any value because they're poor, that Jesus says, the good news is that the kingdom has come for you. God sees you. Blessed are the poor who are trusting in God. And then he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those of you who feel like you don't have a lot to offer, you don't go to Jerusalem, do the sacrifice. You don't keep all the laws. You know you don't have a lot to offer, but you realize that. The good news is the kingdom is for you. Now, this raises in a couple questions for our life as we begin to apply this to our life. And and so the first question goes like this. The first question is, how welcome do you feel? How welcome do you feel? In other words, like if we were you know, charting the course of this tax collector, going to the, the the temple that day, and we asked, how welcome did he feel? I think we would all agree he didn't feel very welcome, right? He, he was hoping he'd be welcome. He was hoping against hope. He'd made this long journey. This was his only shot. But he is not feeling very confident. He is much like the prodigal son, remember, coming home, ready just to be a servant and just hoping that the father will take him back as a slave. And, and that's his hope. I just hope against hope that he'll at least let me be like a slave, right? It's the prodigal son. And the taxa, he's, he's hoping against hope that God will not strike him dead. But he doesn't know what else to do. So as he walks in the temple that day and he walks through the court of the women, maybe he gets that far and he gets to the court of the men, he just stops. He's not going to go any further because... He's not really sure he's welcomed here. He knows he has violated the law of God. He knows he's been rebellious. He knows he's against uncounted. He knows he ripped people off. He knows he has hurt people and torn families apart. And he knows his life has been a mess. And so he comes, but he's just coming. He's afraid. He's afraid to come in the presence of God because he's afraid. That though this is his only hope, he's going to be rejected and condemned and judged. And so the question I have for you is when you come into the temple of God, when you come into the presence of God, how welcome do you feel? And here's the thing is, I I believe that even if you're here as a follower of Jesus today, even if you've made that commitment to Jesus, that my observation is that many times we don't feel welcome, that in many ways we often come very tentatively into the presence of God, whether it's into a church, whether it's into a life group, it's time alone with God, whatever, into worship. We come tentatively because we're not sure, like the tactics of that, we're going to be welcome. And there can be a couple reasons for this, and I want to, like, lay them out. One is because we feel poor. And I'm talking poor in spirit. I'm talking about poor. Sometimes this can be a literal economic issue. Like, for some of you, you're not really happy the way your life has gone. You you have a dead-end job. You don't make much money. Maybe you grew up in a family that was wealthy. I don't know. But for whatever reason, you feel like a failure. You feel like a loser. And a lot of us carry this. We go to our life group. We're afraid of that first night when someone says, what do you do? And well, we don't want to tell them what we do. We're kind of ashamed of what we do. And we would never invite anyone to our home or our apartment because we don't want them to see what part of town we live in. And so we go through life because of our economics, feeling unworthy and it's it's carried over even to our spiritual life sometimes it's a different kind of poverty sometimes it's a poverty that for some of you you grew up in a home your parents did not love you and they told you that and they told you you would they said mean and hurtful and abusive things that wounded you deeply And it's resulted in your whole life feeling like you don't measure up. There's some of you here, if I were to ask you, do you ever feel that you've been deeply loved and treasured by another human being? Then it might move you to tears as you say, no. I've been looking for that my whole life. And so we go through life trying to achieve. But for some of us in the room, we'd say, I'm not the brightest. I I, I struggled in school. I'm not very bright. I've not been successful. I'm not that good looking. My life hasn't worked out. And so what happens is you've gone through life and your view of yourself is you are poor and therefore you are unworthy. And the reality is, is because we live in a culture like every culture throughout time that values people who are rich, powerful, influential, bright, and attractive. That you've gone through your life feeling like you don't count. And so the reality is, when you come and you listen to Jesus teach, deep inside of you, you have a hard time receiving it because you see yourself as poor and you're not valued. No one's ever valued you. And today, what we see is that Jesus sees your pain. And the spirit of Yahweh is upon him to announce good news to the poor. That you are seen, that you are loved, you are treasured, you're deeply valued. And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. The only one that matters what he thinks says you are important. And he wants to walk into your life and say, listen, I know as you sit on this hillside, you feel like poor and you feel like there's, you don't amount to much. But I want you to know, blessed are the poor. And I want to invite you to become part of my kingdom. I want to redefine your life. I want to redefine how you see yourself. And can I tell you something? Your future is incredibly bright. There's others of us here, though, that that's not our issue our issue is not so much that we haven't been successful, or we're not that good looking, or we haven't, uh, you know, suc- uh, succeeded in life, or whatever. We haven't been loved. But our issue is that whether rich or poor, successful or not, our issue is that we know that we've blown it big time. That we have rebelled and we've screwed up our life. We relate to the tax collector. We look back over our life, a series, whether your life is long or short. We look back over the decisions we've made, the people we've hurt, the betrayals that we've portrayed, the babies that we've aborted, the sexual sins that we've committed, the fraud that we've done to get ahead, the cheating, the lying, the unfaithfulness, whatever it is. And we, we, we know that's the truth about ourselves. And like the tax gatherer, we're afraid to approach the presence because we're afraid that this kingdom is not for us. You know, there's some of us here in this room that you come to Rocky Peak, you may have even at one time prayed to receive Jesus in your life. But deep in your heart, when I or one of the other pastors is up here talking about God's love for you, his vision for your life, how he wants to use you, you have such a hard time believing that because every time that we say that into your image comes that person or that situation that you did or committed and you can't get over it. And so you believe that maybe you could be in the kingdom, but in a figurative way, you're sort of a second class citizen of this kingdom. You might be in, but you need to sit in the back of row, you need to see in the back row, or you need to be, and so what happens is everything that is said, when you read the Bible, when you listen to worship songs, when you listen to teaching here on the weekend, when your life comes, everything gets filtered through that, and so it comes in, God has a vision for your life, he's passionate about it, he wants to use you, and as it comes in, it just gets skewed away, because you think that, I believe that's true, but not for me. Can I tell you something? The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And the spirit of the Lord is upon him and he is bringing good news. And it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. If you want to know how God feels about you, at the moment you say, I want to repent and I want to come home The Father will run to you. He will run to you because you are welcome here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Now, the second question. This is a little different, but the question goes like this. How honest are you? One of the things that we've seen today is that Jesus doesn't care where you're coming from. He cares where you're going. You know, the one who went home justified was the tax gatherer who had ripped off. And to us, you know, we just say tax collector, right? It's kind of this category of superset and we can't relate. This guy had probably just really ripped off, broken up families, abused people, threatened, um, you know, intimidator. Uh, he may have sent kids into slavery. I mean, this kind of had done evil things, you know, and he recognizes it and he's willing to be radically honest. And so what we learn is that if you want to be in the kingdom, it doesn't matter where you're coming from, but it does matter that you're radically honest. That what we see in the life and teaching of Jesus is there's kind of one kind of person that he can't help and that's the kind of person who wants to pretend they're spiritually rich when the reality is we're all broke. And what we're going to see is that even, like I've often said, even the best doctor in all the world cannot heal you if you are dishonest about your symptoms. And as long as we want to pretend that we have it all together, he can't help us and we can't be part of the kingdom. And this is so important because often in the Christian community, we can be the worst at this that the, Christ, the community of Jesus should be the most honest place in all the world because we have no fear. We've got a God that says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But the reality is often we operate more like Pharisees. I think sometimes we do this because it's really a pride issue like it was for the Pharisees that, you know, they were all look good on the outside. But remember what Jesus said later on, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup, but you don't clean the inside. And so they they were willing to stand on their outward record, but inside they're full of greed and pride and arrogance and narcissism. We're going to see it through, you know, so Jesus, you're not willing to face the truth about yourself. And because of that, you can't be in the kingdom. You can't be a part of this thing. Like, I can't help you if you're not willing to be honest. And so sometimes in Christian circles, it's because of pride. But here's a bigger thing. I think often it's because of fear that we really are like that tax collector. We're afraid to approach the presence. We're afraid to get close. We're afraid to lift our head to heaven because deep inside, if we admit the truth about ourselves, our motives, our true values, our real emotions, our real thoughts, what we've really done, we're afraid that if we admit that, and this is often, I think, at a subconscious level, We're afraid that if we admit that, that God himself will not accept us. And so what happens is we hide from ourselves and we hide from God, but the end result is we never experience the power of the kingdom. And so our vision here at Rocky Peak is to build a place that's incredibly safe to be real, to be honest, to be vulnerable, to tell the truth under the banner of the lordship of King Jesus. It doesn't do any good to tell the truth if you're not going to repent, right? We have to come under his leadership. But Our vision is to create a place where it's safe to say, you know what? I do have an anger issue. I've been telling my wife for 15 years I don't. That's just her fault. And the reality is it's not her fault. It's everywhere I go. I've got an anger problem. I need to stop, stop pretending we're so close with Jesus and I love Jesus and lying about the truth of myself. I've got to stop lying that I don't have a porn issue and pretending it's not that big a deal. I've got to start admitting that I've got a problem. I've got an addiction and it's messing with my life. We've got to start facing the fact, you know what, I don't have a passion for God. I go to church, I go through the motions, but I don't have a passion for God. And I've been afraid to admit that because I don't know what to do about that. Can I tell you the first step to getting a passion for God is admitting you don't have one. As long as you want to pretend that you're okay, guess what? You're never going to grow. If your marriage is screwed up, the first thing you have to do is to say, we got a problem, and we don't know how to fix it. As long as you're going to pretend it's okay, it will never get better. Are you with me? And we are so afraid. We're afraid to go before Jesus with the ugliest parts of who we are. And the sorrowful thing about that is if we would, we would go away justified. Because the king is in the house. (laughs) The king is in the house. And the spirit of Yahweh is upon him to announce good news to the poor. So he said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. And so if you want to be in the kingdom, you have to face the truth that you're a sinner. Something is desperately wrong. And when we do that, the power of the kingdom of the heavens can begin to be released in our lives. Amen? Amen. And that is good news. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful and excited for these these words of yours, these words of your son. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. Thank you that your vision. For our lives is so much bigger than just individual salvation, but it's, it's the recreation of all things. And thank you that you call us to be part of that, to play a part of that, and to play important roles. But we know the first step, God, is for us just to be radically honest so you can change us, so we in turn can go out and be that light of the world. And so, Lord, as we come to worship you, as we bring you our tithes, our gifts, our offerings, would you meet us now? in the power of your spirit, and speak these things to our lives. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom. We pray this in your name. Amen. Blessed are the spiritual zeros. Amen. (laughs) Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those that others don't value, because the kingdom of the heaven is at hand. May this be a week where you revel in that truth that Jesus said no one who comes to him will be ever turned away. And may you revel in the truth that there are no second class citizens in the kingdom. If you are in the kingdom, all rights and privileges of the King come to you. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, we have been blessed in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, every spiritual blessing of the heavenlies is yours. There are no second-class citizens. And so, if that's you, may you rise up and cast off the lie and listen to the servant of Yahweh who is moving through our midst, that the spirit of Yahweh is on him to announce good news to the poor. Amen. So I hope you can be with us next week as we continue this journey, as we go on to the second countercultural statement of Jesus, blessed are those who mourn. Really? I don't want to sign up for that. So we'll see what he says next week. Until next week, may you revel in the grace of God as you see the Father running to you to embrace you and welcome you home uh, every day. And on the side of our auditorium, both of them, we have uh, people teams there to pray for you if you need prayer about anything So until next week, may the Lord be with you. I'll see you then. God bless.